Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about Jonathan Demi, a filmmaker who sadly recently passed away. This is kind of an impromptu episode, but... I always feel weird when you see, like, articles or stuff like that when someone passes away. Like, it's just like, like you're cashing in on exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. right? But when it did come out that he passed away, I use it more as an opportunity of, oh, he has all these films that I haven't seen that he's made, and here's a reason to do it. I would say that my relationship with Jonathan Demme uh, prior to this week was that, like anybody who watches movies, I had seen, of course, a ton of his movies. He was never an, a special favorite of mine, uh, but he has made several movies that I love, uh, and I've always kind of admired his uh, creative spirit and his uh, willingness to experiment. Like in the, how in the last uh, like decade and a half, he's done all these documentaries and, you know, concert films. And we should say that we actually saw a Jonathan Demi movie together, but you were banned from sitting with oh, me. Oh yeah. So uh, a little over a year ago, I went to the uh, Ted Rogers hot doc cinema, as it's now called to Ugh. see stop formerly the blur to see stop making sense, which I'd never seen. Me neither. And uh, you were there on a date with your girlfriend and you said, you can't come sit with us or say hi to us. And I was like, Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> so you went and sat by yourself. By myself. Yeah. You told me that before actually. Cause I, I, you said you were going to go to the movie. You said, Oh, I'm going to. And you said, okay, but you can't. <laughs> That's right. And, I'd rather not be seen in public with right. you. And as a result, we haven't spoken since except on mic. Uh, we're a regular Martin and Lewis that way. <laughs> but for a film that probably most people in the theater had already seen mm-hmm. was received with such rupturous energy. People were dancing in the aisles. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, there's no doubt in my mind that Stop Making Sense is the best concert film of all time. Oh, yeah. Like, you can name other ones like Sign of the Times by Print, which is really good, or like The Last, Last Waltz. Waltz, or even the other Rolling Stones uh, doc that Scorsese made. But like, Stop Making Sense, it's such a pure blast of like musical energy right into your veins yeah i mean going in a little over a year ago i'd been waiting to see this movie when a theater would play it because i i guess i figured i wanted to hear hear it sound good Mm -hmm. um but the talking heads didn't really mean a lot to me going in uh but i definitely left a huge fan and and i almost i know almost nothing about david byrne or the talking heads but i feel like everything i need to know about them is in that movie absolutely like even to the point where you know they broke up later i don't know the circumstances of their breakup but i look at that and i think well of course you can't sustain this energy and you know david byrne so kind of overshadows the other people of course like it's all there yeah but i also think that jonathan demi brings a lot of the energy to the performance the way he shoots it like that opening shot that just follows that boom box the burning down the house musical number i think it's just like in my top five scenes of all time it's it's just such a energy i don't even know i have the words to describe it i've I've watched on youtube like dozens of times since then (laughs) and the way he shoots it okay you remember the shot where like the camera is honing in on david burns singing it and it comes closer and closer to his face and then he like ducks and goes into this like crouching position the camera's now sort of like stranded in midair until it finds him that's perfect because the song is building to this crescendo and then you need that little bit of release yeah. before you go back into it. So Jonathan Demi, other than directing like the big Oscar winner, Sons of the Lambs, Philadelphia, he also started in the place that me and Will love the best, the Roger Corman factory. Hell yeah. And so Demi wrote a bunch of films before he did anything else. He wrote The Hot Box, which is a woman in prison film, and he really wanted to direct And Corman gave him a deal at first, which was, yeah, you can go make a movie. Wait, no, I will not pay for this movie. If you can get the funding together, I will go distribute it. 
Mm. And now that sounds like a horrible thing to do to someone, but Demi talks nothing but happily about the time he spent with Corman. I uh, got the chance to see him in September where he introduced a screening of uh, Something Wild. And when someone brought up Corman, Demi just like lit up Mm. like a Christmas tree and was so happy to talk about it, even though those stories have probably been told like a million times. Uh, Demi gave Corman his Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, He was like, get up here, Roger. And also, uh, Corman is in two of Demi's films. Corman is uh, in Silence of the Lambs, and he's also at the wedding in Rachel Getting Married. Because obviously people like Francis Ford Coppola, like they like putting him in their motion pictures or the howling where Corman is going into the payphone looking for change. Yeah, and he's in Apollo 13 and Looney Tunes back in action of course playing the director of a batman film (laughs) so caged heat which was the first film that demi ever made uh as director as a director yeah which me and will got a chance to watch is you know your basic template uh women in prison film but according to roger corman demi came to him and basically said i want to make the best women in prison Mm -hmm. film ever made Uh, and he had the help of his uh cinematographer that would go on to work and define his style Mm -hmm further down in his career, which was Tak Fujimoto. And so, like, this is a movie that, on paper, is, you know, your standard women in prison plot. It's a little bit convoluted at times. There's, like, a bunch of characters. Mm -hmm. But man, does it look good. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, not just the dream sequences, which are very kind of, like, arty-looking, but also just scenes like the the camera dollying between the prison cells or, you know, the requisite shower scene, which every women's prison movie has to have. Corman supposedly said, I want you to make me a kind of more feminist women in prison film, but also have all the breasts and the violence that the other ones do. Yeah, so a lot of breasts, but the shower scene... I don't know, the way he uses the camera to create this kind of like claustrophobic space. There's like a fight scene that breaks out between the very thin shower walls. Yeah. I I think it's quite a good movie. Especially Uh, when it reaches... I think that once it builds up steam, it gets really good. Yeah. When stories kind of pull into focus and you realize what's going on. Yeah, uh, it's good. It's it's not as fun as I expected it to be. In fact, a lot of it's quite depressing. And he really does create a sense of like this this oppressive, corrupt prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Run by wheelchair bound Barbara Steele. Yeah, who's great. <laughs> and it, it although does... she does feel in a bit of a different key with the rest of the movie because yeah, she her... doesn't seem as evil as well, she should. Her be. performance is very camp. Like she, I would imagine her being in more of like a Jess Franco prison film than in... or even like a Jack Hill one, like yeah. the Big Dollhouse or the Big Bird Kids. Because the rest of this movie is is yeah again kind of like depressing and somber. <laughs> I watched a bunch of like the deep cuts Demi for this uh, podcast. And I think that what I discovered is that like, he is a genre filmmaker at heart. While you can say that he is obviously like a humanist. That's what really interests him in these movies. Mm -hmm. These little slices of people's lives at the same time in a film like fighting mad, which is about Peter Fonda fighting against evil land developers until it builds up to the climax of him killing them all. Mm. You can see that Demi is definitely having a ball with this kind of material. And something that I noticed watching all these films is that Demi is not one that would do that many commentary tracks for his film. I think there's one on a laser disc for Silence of the Lambs and there's one on the trouble with Harry and probably the Manchurian candidate remake. But he dedicates everything to these Corman films. Like Caged Heat, Crazy Mama, Fighting Matt. He does commentary with Corman on all of them, which shows that obvious fondness he has for these experiences. Yeah, well, it's too bad he didn't do more commentaries because he's a great interview. Yes. You know, very, very lively and energetic. As I was talking about, like, the deep cuts that I watched, we both watched Melvin and Howard. Which was the movie that I think 
really established his legitimacy, turned him into a critical darling mm-hmm. outside of, you know, the Corman stuff. Yeah, it won like a New York's Critics Award. It won some Oscars. Mary Steenburgen got Supporting Actress. And what did you think of it? I liked it. Not a lot, but enough. Um, I I was reading the Pauline Kael review because she was a big supporter of him and she made the case. I'm, I'm not sure if I entirely agree with it, but she, in her hyperbolic style, she said, he shows perhaps a finer understanding of lower middle class life than any other director. And later she says, the game show is what sustains Melvin. If you pick the right door, what's behind is happiness. And I mean, she's hyperbolic, but she does get to, I guess, what's charming about the movie, which is this kind of like, empathetic and not totally judgmental depiction of kind of like lower middle class striving but it's also like the prototypical version of films that would be like ed wood and stuff like that right which is a biopic lovable loser exactly it's like a biopic about someone that shouldn't deserve a biopic because the story goes that um based on a true story a guy named melvin picked up a guy named howard in the desert and drove him back to las vegas and the howard claimed to be no less than howard hughes who was out motorcycling in the desert and crashed his motorcycle and then years later when howard hughes died they found a will in the mormon church that um gave this melvin guy who drove him like hundreds of millions of dollars and melvin was just sort of like uh you know, a milkman who uh, harbored desires of being a music writer. But I think that the most surprising thing watching this movie is that for a film called Melvin and Howard, like that's not what the movie's about. <laughs> you kind of do get psyched up for a little more <laughs> Howard Hughes, don't you? Played by Jason Robards. Um, <laughs> in scenes that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson said completely inspired the master. Oh, really? Where he's riding his motorbike. Well, I mean, I, I think Howard Hughes, though, occupies as much time of the movie as he should. I mm, mean... Ten it, minutes? Well, it's like that joke about about. Ham- Hamlet. You ask the gravedigger what Hamlet's about. It's, he says it's about a gravedigger who meets a prince. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this movie is about this loser who meets a, a famous man. And that that one uh, meeting kind of casts a shade over the rest of everything we see. But he only meets him once because, he, of course, he only meets him once. Exactly. Yeah. And like even at the end when the will comes up, that's really only in the last like 15 minutes of the movie. So what you are getting is like a kitchen sink drama about this one guy just going through life. Yeah. And I guess the movie comes up with kind of an interesting idea that Melvin's kind of this get rich quick guy or every time he gets into some money, he starts he starts throwing money at like buying boats and TVs There's this and amazing stuff. scene where he comes back home with a new car and a new boat and his wife goes to leave him because she can't believe that he spent their money again. And then he's like, listen, I just want to talk to you. When I was a kid, I would see these people drive by with boats. And I just wanted one. Yeah. And now I have one. Yeah. Or like he romanticizes the idea of going on a game show and winning money. And at the end of the movie, he realizes that, of course, he's never going to get the money in Howard Hughes' will because a guy like him, they're not going to let him have the money. And things like the game show are just an illusion there to like to sustain your yeah. life, to keep going. And yeah. Stuff like yeah. That. And to keep you in your place. I watched Last Embrace as well from 1979, which is a kind of forgotten Jonathan Demme one, uh-huh. which is basically Jonathan Demme doing Brian De Palma doing Hitchcock. Okay. Like it's a full on Hitchcock homage. It even ends with like two characters about to fall off of something the poster is like a big waterfall Mm. the biggest problem the movie has is that it cast uh roy schneider in a cary grant like charming role okay and uh roy schneider i don't usually associate with charming out of maybe something like jaws because he has more of a hard edge face to him when I think of, you know, why Jonathan Demme was never somebody who I was all that excited about, even though he made movies that I liked, 
maybe it comes back to this idea that he worked in all these different genres. He worked in so many different kinds of movies. If you listen to this show, you'll know that I have a bit of an auteur bias here. Mm -hmm. So in the last week, I've read obituaries for Jonathan Demme that made a good case for him as an auteur. But I never I never saw it really? in you his didn't? lifetime. Not, not really. I, I remember mean, hearing yeah. the story of Paul Thomas Anderson after screening of Boogie Nights. He ran up to Jonathan Demme, who was in the audience, and went, Oh my God, Jonathan, you are my biggest inspiration. Did you see all that stuff in the movie? And Demme was like, What are you talking about? Like Scorsese, yeah, I could see that. He's like, No, no, no. It's like the close-ups that you use. Oh, interesting. Like, that's what I love. And... Paul Thomas Anderson went on record saying, like, Demi is one of his biggest inspirations when it comes to making movies. Well, I was looking at obituaries this week, and I saw um, Callum Marsh in his obituary in the National Post made a case for the abiding generosity of Demi's movies. And he said, uh, I'm quoting from him, he was alert to what was precious and true in every life he chanced upon, and he wanted to impress his audience the importance of remaining open to the world and the possibilities of understanding it affords us just because the story has a hero doesn't mean everyone else is subordinate to him everyone else has a story too. listen to them be attentive and observant and your own will prove all the more abundant and then he makes the case of like th there's an empathy in the way you know he treats the minor characters so buffalo bill's victim in silence of the lambs we first see her like riding in a car singing singing a song mm -hmm. like he humanizes everyone and i i guess of what i've read of jonathan demi this week that's i guess the most compelling case for him as an yeah auteur. yeah like i said before it's that kind of humanist angle that he takes on everything and in fact everyone this week was talking about like what a nice guy he was <laughs> yeah. which which i thought I have to say, I thought it seemed a little bit overdone because should it really be that like, I know he was nice, but should it really be that big a shock that like a guy was nice? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it is. Because like directors are shits, right? Maybe so, it is. Yeah. And they kind of just wave it under the table because being a director is the definition of having to be a, a dictator. Yeah. So if you're a nice guy, that's something that you don't need to do. Well, I know I met Demi once at a, at a round table f at TIFF for the uh, R Rachel getting married. I name dropping. But, <laughs> yes. but, but, but I mean, he he did stick out in my memory. He was talking a lot about like digital cinematography. I think this might have been the first digital movie he made. And he was like bouncing up and down in his chair about how I'm never making another movie in uh, 35 millimeter again. Like because he had so much fun shooting. Yeah. And like, and like I was kind of struck by, you know, he was he was in his 60s at the time. And I was struck by like his his kind of like eagerness to experiment his kind of like excitement to talk about, you know, this new challenge. Well, that's the one thing that he always had. Right. And I think it may be the what leads you into believing that he doesn't have that much of a notorial voice is that he did so much. Yeah. Whether it be documentaries, he directed three episodes of Saturday Night Live. Oh, I didn't know that. And that it's tough to like focus in on someone when they are spread that thin. Yeah. But then you have movies like Something Wild, which I feel... Which I love, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Which I feel has come back in the popular consciousness recently and has been just cemented as a classic. Yeah, maybe it was the Criterion bump that gave it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That movie is just amazing from top to bottom. What I like about it is, like, you can't pin it down. It's, like, constantly changing tones. And, and e even, you know, you in the performance styles, you have Jeff Daniels, who's this kind of, like, again, lovable loser, and you have Melanie Griffith. But then you also have, like, Ray Liotta at his edgiest and his scariest. Well, like, the movie even goes to lengths to, like, indicate those tonal changes. Like, there's a dance scene that Jeff Bridges has, and the lights dim right before Ray Liotta comes in. Yeah. And the film kind of changes angles from being a, you know, two fun kids on a road trip to, yeah. like, this is real now, and there's actual consequences about what you're doing. Yeah, and, but... He also, like, takes enough chances to throw in things like 
that singer in the end credits singing wild thing i'm sorry i've forgotten her name i know she's famous yeah so. diegetically yeah like it, the camera pans over and there she is singing yeah or you know just lots of like the movie takes takes its time to pause and have little human moments with lots of different characters. So if there's like one movie of Johnson Demi that you haven't seen, I would definitely recommend Something Wild as the one to go to. And I guess maybe the other reason why I haven't thought as much about Demi as I should is the fact that after Philadelphia and Silence of the Lambs, he became this sort of prestige director. Yeah, he got caught in that box. But here's the thing. On Twitter this week, I've seen all of these people making kind of I don't know if they're even revisionist arguments. They seem revisionist to me. A lot of arguments for movies like The Manchurian Candidate Bad. or Beloved with Oprah Winfrey. I've never seen it. But uh, that was like his big shot too. He made that right after Philadelphia and it was like this two hour yeah. plus adaptation of a Toni Morrison book. Yeah. And it just bombed at the box office, which almost put him in a position where he was kind of struggling because after that... And The Truth About Charlie was also a huge flop. Which I did just watch today. And again? And no, it is not. Oh, well. It's interesting. And what I said is that it feels like he's trying to take the Dogma 95 style to The Truth About Charlie being a remake of the Cary Grant um, Audrey Hepburn charade. Uh-huh. So the camera's always kind of shaky and it's all like in close-ups on people. But at the same time, he has like these Richard Lester style touches where like really goofy shit will happen. Like at one point, they put a record on by a famous French musician and the camera tracks over to show that French musician singing in their room. Okay. Or there's a scene where a character is just walking across um, a Paris alleyway and there's like, it says, umbrellas by Jacques yeah and then it was like the the uh, Jacques Demy style umbrella of Cherbourg like paintings I'm like oh that's funny and then the camera keeps tracking and there's Agnes Varda Jacques Demy's oh, wife that, oh that's really cool <laughs> uh, well he, his last concert film with Neil Young he made three concert films with Neil Young the last one uh, he put a microphone oh, sorry he put a camera on Neil Young's microphone mm-hmm. and so you get these like harrowing close up shots of Neil Young's mouth <laughs> So he was certainly experimental. Yeah, I think that that's something that watching all these movies in quick succession really defined for me, is that he is willing to take chances and do things out of the box. And whether they work or not, like Truth About Charlie, and Truth About Charlie does have its defenders now. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to see why, like it uses digital videos in interesting ways to denote like flashbacks and hallucinations characters are having. And you know that people in film Twitter eat that shit up. Yeah. And then he'll do something like Rachel Getting Married, which is this sort of like Cassavetes Mm -hmm. style raw... I assume maybe there was some improvisation in it. And I don't know... And Hathaway's best performance, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, like, where Johnson Demi wanted to take his career after it kind of took a bit of a nosedive with these, like, string of box office flops. But you can see him really struggling if you look at his filmography where he did a lot of TV series. Mm. And it wasn't until he made, like, Ricky and the Flash that was, like, his big... Hey, he's back to, like... Well, Rachel Getting Married was a pretty big success, at least critically. Yeah. But Ricky and the Flash was supposed to be, like, his return to form, right? Like, remember that Demi you love? He's back! Oh, yeah. Again, I saw some revisionist reappraisal for that this week. I liked it. Yeah, you did? Yeah, I did. Did you see much of Demi in it, if you could uh, I did. I actually did. Because something that we didn't really mention is that, like, Demi is also in love with the idea of the way that music can impact people's lives. Oh, yeah. I believe he said that his first love was music. Mm -hmm. And you can definitely, like, Something Wild has an amazing soundtrack. And Uh, we were talking about, like, his kind of niceness that's also extended to his more political views and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which were very progressive. 
And that that also kind of had its tendrils in all the documentaries that he made. Like which, the Jimmy Carter one, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ricky and the, you didn't see Ricky and the Flash, did you? No. Uh, I was wondering if that's... Yeah, well, <laughs> I didn't sorry. watch it till now either. I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> I, Great Rick Springfield performance. Oh, cool. Demi, though, is probably still best known in the popular consciousness for Silence of the Lambs and to a lesser extent for Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which... What, that, what Phil- else is there to say you know, about those Well, movies, Philadelphia though. is one that I didn't see a lot of revisionist reappraisal for this week because you know it was obviously a big success in 93 or 94 but uh i think it's kind of gone down into history as this well-meaning liberal uh attempt to introduce gay people to the mainstream um i think it's good like it's fine yeah it's not one i'm rushing out to throw back on my dvd player to watch but i think it's a movie that probably seems pretty dated now i don't know I should probably see it before so throwing around the, these judgments, but I don't hear people say very many nice things about it anymore. Well, I think it maybe because it was so critically acclaimed at the time, yeah. And that when you're writing about someone who's passed away, you, you <laughs> people rarely are like, "Remember that great movie that won all the Oscars? Still great." But what do you think of Silence of the Lambs? Good movie. Good movie. Also won a bunch of Oscars. Yeah, just a just an entertaining good time. Uh, Anthony Hopkins a little hammy. <laughs> <laughs> Not Hot gonna take. lie. Yeah, uh, Academy Award-winning uh, actor Anthony Hopkins. I think uh, he won Best Actor, and I think he has like maybe the least screen time of any Best Actor winner. I guess if uh, I've learned anything this week, it is that idea of he was a nice guy, and that niceness infused his cinema. Uh, his cinema was just full of positivity, and I don't associate his films with kind of I, I don't associate his films with cynicism. And when I think of the Demi Oeuvre, when I think of the movies that I like, I think of like the good feeling they give me mm-hmm. like you know like we talked stop, about the stop, making, stop sense. making sense it's just a pure blast of joy or even something wild yeah like it's just like yeah it feels good to be alive and even uh silence of the lambs which has so much like hair raising stuff in it my overwhelming thought feeling of it is just like have, having fun being entertained you know anthony hopkins grinning <laughs> saying i'm having a friend for dinner and and walking away at the end i saw you would associate that with whatever <laughs> mike myers or jim carrey parody <laughs> so this week on our patreon which i forgot to advertise last week yeah what the fuck you're you're <laughs> taking money out of our pockets <laughs> So last week we did Hot Fuzz, and it was actually kind of a career retrospective of Edgar Wright. We basically talked about all of his films. Tenth anniversary of Hot Fuzz, though. But this week we like we did the work this week because we watched Adam Sandler's new film, Sandy Wexler. Mm-hmm. What did we think of it? Did we love it? Oh, you're gonna have to listen yeah, to find out. There's also a celebrity cameo in the episode because Will made a sarcastic tweet about Sandy Wexler, and someone reached out to rebuke him. Somebody involved in the film, Sandy Wexler. Who is it? <laughs> Yeah, you'll you have, have to, to find listen out. to find yeah. out. And as usual, five bucks, you get four extra episodes. They've been kind of peaking around almost 20 minutes each. Yeah. So it's like you get two extra episodes of the Important Cinema Club. Yeah. And we're worth it. And so this week, we have letters. Oh, hell yeah. If you want to send us letters, do it at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, more questions. And this letter goes years in film from... Chris Berube. Oh, my good friend, Chris. He goes, hi. Patreon subscriber, in fact. Yeah. Well, I mean, this email may be about it. Hi, Important Cinema Club. I've really been enjoying your Patreon shows. Oh. And I appreciate the deeper looks at specific movies. I've noticed you're covering a lot of films from 2007 (laughs) because it's the 10-year anniversary, including Grindhouse, Hot Fuzz, and Zodiac. Yeah, it is a bit lazy, isn't it? (laughs) I went back to look at other movies turning 10 this year, and it feels like a lot of really good stuff came out in 2007. Certainly Zodiac and Hot Fuzz, but also No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, 
Four months, three weeks, and two days. Eastern Promises. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I'm not there. Away from her and the host, to name a few. Wow, that makes me feel old. Also, Brand Upon the Brain, Syndromes, and, and a Century, and some interesting failures like Hot Rod. Hmm, great movie. Am I reading too much into this? Am I being nostalgic for my college years? Or is there something happening in the film industry that produced an unusually rich, strange year in movies? I've actually heard uh, 2007 as being referred to fondly yeah i know who killed me also came out in 2007 <laughs> so obviously it wasn't all good where are the hot take reappraisals of i know you killed me i when i hear people talk about 2007 at the time all the top 10 lists were dominated by no country for old man there will be blood and zodiac um great movies and those are three really good movies to top a year i feel that the thing about like top 10 lists and looking back on years in movies is that at the end when people make those lists it's always the worst year in movies ever like, it's like, there was nothing good that I can put on here. But down the line, that kind of gets shaved down to only the good stuff, right? Yeah. And the junk kind of goes away. Yeah, but I, I, I swear to God, I remember people at the time saying that 2007 was a good year. I can't believe anybody saying that. But what, what I do remember is that, like, the Best Picture nominees included Juno and uh, <laughs> Atonement. Oh, man. And, uh, and, of course, the movie that lives on in everyone's heart, Michael Clayton. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably fine. I haven't seen it in 10 years. <laughs> and yeah, well, I mean, Oscars, that's obviously an example of them meaning almost nothing. Well, I remember what I put on my top 10 list in 2007. You made top 10 list in 2007? I was exactly the person, the kind of person who made top 10 list in 2007. <laughs> I remember the movies included. Uh, I was not in peak form. I put Paris Jatam on it. <laughs> I put... That's when you revisited a lot since then, Oh, right? yeah, all the time. Uh, I put on uh, the Iraq War documentary No End in Sight by Alex Gibney because it seemed really important at the time. What can I tell you? <laughs> again, not going to watch that again. <laughs> Lust Caution was on my list. Uh, that, I've never actually that, seen that one. I, I would, you know, that one might hold up. Who knows? And the thing about like all those films that you mentioned, the reason that we usually do this, the movies we do in our Patreon is that we know we couldn't dedicate like 30 minutes to talking about it. Yeah. So if you're wondering like, should I subscribe to the Patreon? Do I need to see the movie they're talking about? You don't. Yeah. Because we're going to talk usually about like the actor or the director's entire career yeah. in that 20 minute episode. Yeah. Well, thanks for the letter, Chris Berbay. Yes. Loyal listener and Patreon subscriber. Thanks for letting me stay at your place in New York when I was there last time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this letter is entitled Cynthia Ross Rock, and it's from... I like, I like it already. <laughs> <laughs> it goes, Hey, Will and Justin. Hello from London, UK, not Ontario. I discovered the show was the Beat Takashi episode, and I've been really enjoying going back through the old episodes. The zine I make about action films, Kill You Last, which is a zine, uh, this is Justin talking right now, uh, was highly recommended by Matthew Kumar, of the uh, Loose Cannons podcast, was once referenced on an episode of Loose Cannons, but don't hold that against me. <laughs> you said on a recent episode that you wanted to do more female filmmakers or actresses, and I wanted to suggest you to do an episode on Cynthia Rossrock. Yeah, her American movies might not be great, but I recently caught up with some of her Hong Kong movies, and they are incredible. In particular, two movies directed by Corey Yun. Police Assassins, aka Yes Madame, with Michelle Yeoh, is quite well known, with the two of them rocking amazing 80s sportswear. Even be better, though, is Writing Wrongs, aka Above the Law, co-starring Yung Bao. It has an incredibly airborne finale and an unbelievably dark and cynical ending. Both are 80 minutes long, 
long, incredibly fast paced, and the weird Chinese humor isn't too weird boring. Ross Rock has an amazing screen fighter when she was in Hong Kong, and one of the few Westerners to hold their own in HK. I also watched China O'Brien at the same time, and it does not compare at all. Anyway, keep up the good work, and I eagerly look forward to your Godzilla episode. Will Jones. Is uh, China O'Brien a Robert Klaus joint? It is a Robert Klaus joint. We should do an episode on him. We should. Now, the thing about Cynthia Rothrock is, like I was saying before, while I do very much enjoy her work, and I did look at her IMDb after I got this letter, and she's been in like 60 movies, she was in Hong Kong for a very short period of time. Uh Uh, She started in the classic um, Mad Mad World of Hong Kong Kung Fu Cinema, Shanghai Express. Oh, yeah. With Richard Norton, Great Jung Bao, Sammo Hung, all the shining stars except for Jackie Chan. I saw Yes, Madam at the Royal last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually a little disappointed because uh, Michelle Yeoh and uh, Cynthia Rothrock don't have as much screen time as fucking Choi Hawk and John Shem. Like... Yeah, the thing about Yes, Madam is that it has an amazing beginning and ending. And it's just yeah. kind of HK comedy in the middle. Yeah. Then she was in Wong Jing classic Magic Crystal with uh, Andy Lau trying to be a Jackie Chan-like figure. And... Like Will said, I think it's undeniable that she can stand toe-to-toe with anybody she's fighting in those movies. I could see us doing her kind of in the context of like a Fighting Femmes episode. Yeah, Girls with Guns. Yeah. Is there an... I I mean... I don't know. Is there enough there to talk about for for her with a whole episode? Uh, I don't want to resort to like doing the Godfrey Ho movie or... uh, Uh, Undefeatable, which was the the famous famous fight scene, yeah. Where a guy gets thrown up on a, um, like a crane and his eye gets punctured out. Yeah. I wonder how she feels though that like her work is so good in Hong Kong and then she comes to America and they just, they don't care, right? Yeah. Let's let's keep her in our back pocket as Mm. something we could do. Good idea. Thanks for the letter, Will. All right, we have a third letter, too. Oh, my God. My cup runneth over. (laughs) And this one is from James Cullen. And he writes, Hello, Justin and Will. I just wanted to say that I discovered your podcast a few weeks ago, and I think it's great. Oh. As a 19-year-old film student, your podcast really helps me when I need to act like a pretentious film student. Ah, that's me. (laughs) I was wondering, however, being indie filmmakers, what filmmaker inspired you to go into the movie industry? Well, only Justin is an indie filmmaker, although I do make an appearance in his upcoming film, uh, Impossible Impossible Horror. Horror. So uh, that makes me an indie filmmaker, too. (laughs) I held a light for for one scene. Oh, you did? I forgot about that. Which I assume means I get a director of photographer credit. I cut that shot out. (laughs) But... What inspired me to become a movie maker? Well, you made films too, Will. Let's not forget Super oh, Willy. I did. When I was like six, uh, six years old, uh, I, I got a video camera and I made Super Willy, which was uh, me as a superhero. It's kind of a Day the Clown Cried type <laughs> film where it's locked out of... Uh, <laughs> out In of the vaults, right? When, Until you die. When we do you a, gave it to the Congre- uh, Library, Library of Congress. Congress. Well, when we do a young Will Sloan episode, we'll talk about <laughs> that. We'll talk about my Batman movie that I made with action figures. I feel that will be after you've passed away and Matthew Cooper. <laughs> Kumar has taken over your spot on the important cinema club. Yeah. And as far as films that inspired me, so the film, I said this before, Dawn of the Dead was the one movie that made me go, whoa, this is what cinema can be. The 1978 version, not the Zack Snyder one. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the most obvious choices, like Evil Dead is the one where you're like, oh, I want to make movies like this. Or John Woo. Who was the the person who kind of made you realize that there is such a thing as a director? Was it George Romero? Yeah, George Romero and John Woo, without a doubt. Yeah. Because their cinema is so evident and in your face yeah. that you're like, whoa, I want to do this. Like, 
I can grasp what they're doing. Like, it's not intangible. Like, mm-hmm. The director's hand is very obvious yeah. and easy to imitate. I can say that after I got a video camera for Christmas one year, all I did was shoot John Wu-style gunfights with my <laughs> friends. I remember we'd go in my front yard and, like, roll around the grass and jump off cement and stuff like that. Everybody holding two guns as I dropped in Windows Movie Maker the soundtrack to... Uh, Probably the good, the bad, and the ugly. That makes me think of, who's that, like, kid on the internet, Sex Man? (laughs) (laughs) Sex Man Films! (laughs) Yeah. Look uh, him up. As we talked about before, too, reading Rebel Without a Crew, the Robert Rodriguez book, like, that is a very tangible, like, he did it, I could probably do it, too. Mm. And uh, the letter actually continues, though. He goes, personally, I've been heavily inspired by some indie directors of the 90s. Can you guess who will? Uh, Quentin Tarantino. No. Oh, God. Uh, I don't know who. Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith. Yeah, <laughs> I knew it. Richard Linklater and Wes Anderson. Okay. So Kevin Smith, me and Will have talked about this a lot. He was a big part of our teenage years. Well, Kevin Smith is the... I, I understand why he's an inspiration for people because you look at Clerks and you're like, I... I, I could do that. And not in a bad way either, mm. but like Clerks is, is a movie. is like, it's about regular people having like witty conversations. Yeah. And Richard Linklater and Wes Anderson, for me, Richard Linklater was never a huge inspiration. Um, but Wes Anderson, obviously, if you're a teen and his movies are coming out, you love him. But his visual style was so unattainable. Yeah, like, exactly. It's not something that yeah. I'm going to try to recreate. And then the letter ends, sincerely a pretentious 19-year-old film student. P.S. I would love to see an episode on Charlie Kaufman, as he is another one of my favorite filmmakers, and I would love to hear your opinion on him. Well, I think Charlie Kaufman is somebody we'll probably do at some point. Uh, he hasn't been a big priority for us, just because he's, people aren't really talking about him. Even though that, that great interview came out, where he was like, I've wasted my life. Yeah. Did you see that one? Yeah, I did. But I will say that I'm a Charlie Kaufman fan. Yeah, yeah. I, can you like movies and not be a Charlie Kaufman? Unless you're well, a weird kind he's of He's definitely contrarian. somebody who, like, like, I remember seeing Adaptation when it came out when I was was like 13 and you know having having that moment of being like whoa i can't believe you can do this with a script right you <laughs> yeah, know? Exactly. like he's he's charlie coffin's a great filmmaker to discover eternal sunshine is fall is mine you're like whoa he 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 gets it man he gets it but actually he does get it like that eternal sunshine is like so good i'm, I'm sometimes the like, film that was always on the shelf at the girl's house when i would go visit I'm like, <laughs> hey you want to watch eternal sunshine of the spotless mind but like that's a film that like you can almost you can almost get spoiled in your head because it's such a kind of like dorm room movie mm-hmm. but i mean it it is a legit great movie it's like annie hall for our generation you exactly know? yeah all right so once again send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and next week we're gonna be a little bit lazy okay so I know we said this week we were going to do Saijin Suzuki. We're going to do them. Jonathan Demi came up and then uh, I'm going on a trip. Um, so we want You don't want to have to like watch a movie on a laptop and force yourself to do it. Well, if I'm watching a movie on a laptop, I don't want it to be Saijin Suzuki mm-hmm. who like I actually have to invest something into. I want to I want to do something kind of fun. Yeah. So what are we doing? We're doing the Three Stooges. Hell yeah. <laughs> Nothing says cinema like the Stooges. I love them. Uh, we're going to do some curly classics, maybe dip into the Shemp. Uh, era and perhaps watch one of the feature films from the curly joe and this is one of the rare figures that aren't really known for their feature films right but they they... don't have like an abbott and costello meet frankenstein no but they made feature films they did curly was in did a few feature films shemp made one are we gonna do the one where they go to mars have rocket will travel (laughs) Yeah. yeah 
Oh, we can do that. You know, my favorite of their feature films is The Outlaws is Coming with uh, a young, fresh-faced Adam West. All right, we're doing that one then. And it's a Western. Yeah, so. and we're going to watch a bunch of their shorts. Like, come on, watch The Plumbing. Yeah, yeah you Plumbing will go, go and stuff like that. You Nasty Spy, stuff. perhaps. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to be ready to laugh next weekend. Yeah. <laughs> my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. There was a bit of a shocker this week on the box office charts, Will. Oh, hell yeah. And what ended up happening is that the number three movie at the box office this weekend was uh, a Tamil film called, what's it called? Bahubali 2, I think. It made, I, I may be getting that wrong. It but. made uh, $10 million and a per screen average of something like $25,000. Which is insane. Yeah, I think it's certainly the biggest uh, showing by any sort of like... Indian film. And what the craziest thing about that is that it's also not distributed by any major studio. So it is yeah. only playing in Indian cinemas, mm-hmm. like in North America. Uh, me and Will. We're going to see it this week. We're going to go see it. And we're going to have to trek all the way north and take like an hour long transit trip to the Albion Cinema in uh, North Etobicoke, where I, back in the day, saw Doom 2. Oh, a, you did? As an impressionable teenager. Yeah, I love the Albion. And the weird thing about that is that this never happens, right? Because at the no. box office? Well, usually if a, if a Bollywood movie does really well at the North American box office, it's like number 10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But number three is unheard of. Yeah. And especially this is a part two. And it's not even a Bollywood film. It's a Tollywood film mm-hmm. because it's from, it's in a completely different language. But it got dubbed and stuff like that. So the Indian audiences go and see it. Mm. And it made me think, like, I was so excited when I saw that. I'm like, holy shit, it was number third. And how much does that affect us, like, box office? Do you keep track of that? Does a 19-year-old Will was like, what's new with box office mojo today? When I was, like, 11 or 12, I, uh, this is so embarrassing to say, it's so pathetic, but when I subscribed to Entertainment Weekly back then, I would, like, literally cut out the box <laughs> office chart and put them in a scrapbook. <laughs> Isn't that that, that that is pathetic? Because like box office, it was like I never I never liked sports, so like this was sports for me. Yeah. Uh, So you were you when did that investment go away? Because I was never invested in box office. I mean, I still check the box office charts every week. I mean, it it matters only in the sense that if the you want the things you like to be successful, so that there are more things like them. But the thing about like a film from India being successful is that could change the whole game of how things are done, right? Like right now, studio executives are going like what the fuck is going on yeah and i'm interested to see like what's happening in china because like like these things you know the box office even though it has no impact on like what the quality of a movie is it has a big impact on what gets made and what the you know it's a barometer for what the trends are so maybe the director of this movie is going to direct the next fast and the furious film one can dream right i think a bollywood director would be great doing a fast i absolutely agree he has to juggle all these egos and stuff like that and also like Bollywood films, a movie like Doom 3 or something like that, like the action is good and also it has no irony whatsoever. And so. that's what those Fast and the Furious films absolutely need. Yeah. Like I said, personally, box office was always some mystical thing to me. And I would always get confused the way on forums people would be like, well, this film's going to tank. And they would write post after post about that. Well, you know, we're, it's almost like when they report the box office on the news, it's almost as if, oh, these movies are good because they yes. were number one at the box office, which I was never under that illusion. <laughs> Oh, you weren't? No. You're like, well, that's got my ticket this week. The English patient again. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So this is really just a teaser leading up to next week's, I guess, back of the episode. I guess, yeah. Where we're going to go to see this film. And hopefully you, the audience can go see it as well make that box bring it to number one pretend that you're sitting there in the theater with us 
<laughs> Put your earphones in. But realistically, Tuesday at the Albion Cinema is probably where we'll be if you want to come meet us. No, no, no fans. That would be weird. <laughs> It's just someone like sitting there waiting for us the entire time. Perhaps one of our foreign listeners is like, oh, God, I got a plane to Toronto really quick. (laughs) I can finally shake their hands. (laughs) Yeah. And don't forget to watch part one before we see part two. It's not a sequel. It's literally the second part. Justin and I will be hanging out tomorrow to watch part one. So we're doing our homework. And then we're going to see, we're seeing a lot of each other this week.